Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Speaking of Pathway to Victory, it wasn't long ago that I received this letter from one of our viewers that really sets the stage for the message today. The man wrote, Dear Dr. Jeffers, three years ago I got involved with a woman at work. My wife never knew what was going on, but I was crushed with such unbearable guilt that I voluntarily ended the affair. I confessed my sin to God and felt like He forgave me but that didn't seem to be enough. I felt like I needed to tell my wife what I had done and seek her forgiveness as well. That was two years ago, and she still has not been able to forgive me or God for allowing the affair to happen in the first place. I know that God has given me, forgiven me, but my question is this, why hasn't God erased the consequences of my sin? God's forgiveness doesn't seem to mean much if my wife and I are doomed to feeling this unbearable regret for the rest of our lives. Perhaps you can identify with this man. Perhaps in your past there is an act of sexual immorality that resulted in some very unwanted circumstances the breakup of a relationship, an unwanted pregnancy, a sexually transmitted disease. And even though you've asked God and you believe you've received from God forgiveness for that mistake, the consequences keep going on and on. Every time you think about that mistake, you want to kick yourself mentally. But your anger toward yourself is tempered by your anger toward God. If God really forgives us, completely forgives us, why doesn't He make the painful consequences go away? That's what we're going to talk about today as we look at what the Bible says about saying goodbye to sexual regrets. You know, in my experience as a pastor, I have found that regrets about immorality tend to rank among the top regrets that people have. Why is that? Let's talk about the why of sexual regrets for just a moment. You know, one of the downsides of preaching for many years and writing books is that people can go back and find what you've said in the past. And some of the things I have said in the past, I wish I could retrieve, but they live forever on videotape or on the printed page. One of the things I would change that I used to say all of the time is this. I used to say, God doesn't grade sin. All sin is the same in God's eyes. Well, there's a technical sense in which that's true. Any sin, no matter how small we think it is, is enough to separate us from God. But it's not all true that, it's not true that all sins have the same consequences. Some sins have more consequences than others. For example, we know from our study of the Sermon on the Mount 
that if you hate somebody in your heart, Jesus says that's the same thing as murder. But nobody's ever fried in the electric chair for anger. That's never gotten somebody convicted and executed. We know from Jesus' teaching that lust, lusting after somebody, is the same as committing adultery in your heart. But nobody's ever gotten pregnant from a sexual fantasy. So there are different consequences. All sin is not the same. And it's certainly true that sexual sin is not the same as any other kind of sin. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 19. Look at this carefully. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Now, this word prostitute doesn't mean somebody who stands on the street corner selling sexual favors. That is a prostitute, but it's a word that means somebody loose in their morals. Verse 16, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For God says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You know, critics of Christianity say, you Christians, you're just so hung up about sex. Why do you make a big deal about sex? I mean, sex is a physiological action. It's no different than eating food or taking a drink of water or going to sleep. It's just a function of the body. Why make a big deal about sex? Well, sex is more than just a physiological function. Uh, there are now physical consequences of immorality. It is uh, uh, something that is doomed to consequences if you uh, dabble in immorality unwanted pregnancies, sexually transmitted diseases are some of the things that we experience and can experience if we disobey God in this area of sexuality. For example, in Romans 1.27, Paul is writing about what happens to people who reject the knowledge of the true God and create their own God in their mind. And he talks about the spiral that leads them further, further away from God. And one of the things in that downward spiral is sexual immorality. And he centers on one kind of immorality, homosexuality. Listen to what he says in Romans 1.27. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons, their own bodies, the due penalty of their error. Some people, and maybe rightly so, talk about sexually transmitted disease being in Paul's mind here. They receive a penalty in their own body for engaging in immorality. And certainly there are a number of diseases that are specifically uh, 
prevalent among homosexual behavior because as Paul says in this chapter, it is unnatural. Literally, it goes against nature. But it's not just homosexuality. It is uh, premarital sex. It is adultery that are also condemned. Now, I know some people say, well, that was back in Paul's day, but we're so smart today, we can prevent those kind of physical consequences of immorality. Just use a condom. Well, I did some research this week, <laughs> did a little internet search to find out the statistics about condoms. Did you know condoms fail 18% of the time? Now, just imagine you went out to DFW Airport. You're about to get on board a plane, and the ticket agent said on the intercom, now, before you board, you should know that there's an 18% chance this plane is going to crash today. How likely would you be to get on the plane? Probably not very likely. Listen, there is no safe sex when it comes to God. You cannot safely sin against God without consequences. One of those consequences may be the physical consequences, but that's not all. There are emotional consequences of immorality that leave regrets in our heart. Let me tell you my observance of more than more than 40 years of being a pastor. When people, single people, are involved in a romance, and that romance goes south, and they break up, sure, it's painful, but they get over it eventually. Some get over it quickly. But if you have introduced sex as a part of that relationship, premarital sex, or if it's an adulterous situation that has extramarital sex as a part of it, when you in that kind of relationship with somebody, it causes all kind of pain, both in their life and in your life. I've seen cases, and you have too, when two people involved in an illicit sexual affair, one person calls it off, the other turns into a stalker, or engages in revenge porn, or results or resorts to violence, sometimes even murder. Why do those emotions run so hot? Because sex is not just the joining of two bodies together. It's the joining together of a person in body, soul, and spirit. And God said that about marriage in Genesis 2.24. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man tear apart. And there is emotional pain that is associated with sexual immorality. Finally, there are spiritual consequences of sexual immorality. That's why it's different than any other kind of sin. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? When you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. And when you sin, any kind of sin, you're asking the Holy Spirit to join in that sin as well. That's why Ephesians 5 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But when you're involved in sexual sin, now this is going to be blasphemous to some of you, but just think about it. When you join yourself to another person, you're inviting the Holy Spirit of God to participate in that act of immorality as well. He said, well, that's impossible. The Holy Spirit of God can't sin. If he's in you, he can't sin. Well, where does he go then? Does he abandon you? No, that's 
heresy to say that the Holy Spirit abandons somebody who's been baptized with the Spirit of God. Where does he go? If you're involved in sexual immorality, listen to James 1, verse 15. We're going to study James next year, but here's a preview. James 1, 15. He's writing to Christians, by the way. He says, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The result of sin, especially sexual sin for a Christian, is death. That word thanatos means separation. What kind of separation is he talking about? Physical death? Physical death is the separation of our spirit from our body. Do we die the moment we sin? Thankfully not. It would all be six feet under this morning. He's not talking about physical death. Well, then is he talking about spiritual death? Spiritual death is the separation of our spirit from God. Well, not if we are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to worry about eternal separation. What kind of death is he talking about? I believe when a Christian engages in continual, unrepentant sin, he goes into a death-like kind of existence where there is a separation in some spiritual sense between that person and God. I think it's a separation Jesus experienced on the cross when he voluntarily took on our sins. He experienced the abandonment by God. Remember what he said? My God, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? James is saying in some sense when you're involved in sin, especially immorality, and it's unrepentant sin, you are separated from God. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. No, all sex is not like all other sin. There's a special consequence of sin, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually, especially sexual sin. We've got a great illustration of that straight from the Bible. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, the story of King David. Remember David's story? He was at the zenith of his power as king. He had just recovered the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, he had captured or defeated the northern kingdom. Jerusalem was the new capital. It had never gotten any better than what David was experiencing. And yet at that high point, that's when temptation came. One night when he should have been out fighting with his men, he was taking some time off. He was just... Uh, resting when he looked out his window and noticed a beautiful woman bathing on the rooftop of her house. Her name was Bathsheba, and you know the rest of the story. He ordered her to come over to his place. They engaged in immorality. She conceived a child. David tried to cover it up by having her husband killed. And the Bible says eventually David sought and received the forgiveness of God. But for those six to 12 months, he tried to hide his sin. He experienced physical, emotional, and spiritual consequences of his sin. For example, he talks about the physical consequences. It was as a result of his sin that his child, Bathsheba's child, was born dead, died shortly after he was born. Not only that, uh, they experienced the rebellion of a kingdom, a divided nation. All of those things were physical consequences of David's sin. And interestingly, 
He continued to experience those consequences after he was forgiven by God. Not only that, there were emotional consequences for his sin. Listen to what he writes in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of the summer. We know all about the fever heat of the summer, don't we? Isn't it just draining to even walk outside, to open the door? It just saps the energy out of you. Well, David's talking about the emotional vitality that got sapped out of him uh, the moment he refused to confess his sin. You see, worry drains us physically and emotionally. If you're involved in sexual immorality like David was, you're always worried that somebody's going to find out or somebody's going to read the text message, or somebody's going to overhear a a conversation. You're afraid that if your deed is found out, you might get expelled from school, or you might get fired from your job. It's worry, worry, worry. That's exactly what David experienced when he tried to cover over his sin. Those were the emotional consequences. But there were spiritual consequences as well. He said during that time that he didn't confess his sin, he said, God, your heavy hand was upon me. There are some of you here, some of you watching on television, you're feeling the heavy hand of God. You're engaged in sin and you've covered over it instead of confessing it. And you feel like the sword of Damocles is hanging over your head. You just have this sense that God is not going to let you get away with this, that discipline, punishment is coming. And so every ache and pain you feel, every sickness you experience, every upheaval in your family, every financial setback you experience, you're thinking, is this God disciplining me? That's what it means to feel the heavy hand of God. Now, David ultimately found God's forgiveness, but forgiveness did not erase these painful consequences. Why is it that God allows us to experience His grace, but that grace doesn't erase the consequences? Chuck Swindoll has a great word about the difference between grace and consequences. He writes, grace means that God in forgiving you does not kill you. Grace means that God in forgiving you gives you the strength to endure the consequences. Grace frees us so that we can obey our Lord. It does not mean sin's consequences are automatically removed. If I sin and in the process of sinning break my arm, when I find forgiveness from sin, I still have to deal with the broken bone. There's some of you right now who have great regret over a sexual mistake you've made, and you're wondering, how can I deal with that? Is my life going to be miserable from here on out? No, it doesn't have to be. But many of you are here at this stage in your life, and you're wondering, how can I prevent regrets about sexuality in the future? And we're going to talk about both of those. First of all, if you are guilty of sexual immorality, Number one, acknowledge your need for God's forgiveness. 
acknowledge your need for God's forgiveness. Now, most of us, many people, view God as some kind of heavenly banker. And we view our relationship with God as a heavenly checking account. I'll guarantee you nine out of ten people think of God this way. They think of their relationship as a checking account. You know how a checking account works. You're continually dealing with credits and debits. You're making deposits and you're making withdrawals. And so we assume our relationship with God is the same way. You know, we're making deposits in our heavenly bank account. If we help an old lady across the street, that's one day, one dollar that gets credited to our account. If we give to United Way, we get five dollars for giving to the United Way in heaven. If we teach a Sunday school class, we get uh, $10 for uh, teaching that Sunday school class. We're making deposits in our heavenly bank account. Unfortunately, we're also making debits, withdrawals. You know, you honk your horn in anger on the tollway, somebody's trying to cut you off, that costs you a dollar. You get mad at your mate and say something you shouldn't say, that's five dollars. You have an affair with another person, that's a hundred thousand dollars. And most people think they, what they need to do is just make sure the credits exceed the debits, that you have more deposits than withdrawals, and when you die, if you're in the plus column, you get to go to heaven. If the good you have outweighs the bad, you get to go to heaven. That's not how it works. Here's the flaw with thinking that way. There's nothing of value we can deposit into our heavenly bank account. We have nothing to deposit. Our so-called money is nothing more than monopoly money. It's fake. It's worthless. Isaiah the prophet said it this way in Isaiah 64, verse 6. The best we can do, our righteousness is like a filthy rag in God's eyes. Now, that's bad news. Here's the worst news. We can't make any credits in our heavenly bank account, but we make debits all the time. Every hour of every day, every what wrong thought we have, every wrong attitude we have, every wrong action we commit, all of those things keep adding to our sin debt. We go further and further in the hole with God every day that we live. Romans 6.23 says it this way, for the wages of sin is death, eternal death from God. Without Jesus Christ, we all die with a spiritual deficit, with a negative balance in our spiritual bank account. We have to acknowledge that. If we're going to be forgiven of our sin, we have to acknowledge that we need God's forgiveness, that we can't pay for it ourselves. And that leads to the second thing we need to do, and that is we need to receive God's forgiveness. Now, here's the great news of the gospel even though I can't deposit anything in my heavenly bank account, there stands somebody who can and is willing if we ask him to. That's what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross for our sins. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, remember that passage? God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I used that illustration a few weeks ago of the two books with the two covers, the story of Robert Jeffress and the story of Jesus Christ and how God switched the covers on the at the cross so that Jesus took all of my spiritual debits, so to speak, and he gave me all his righteousness credit. 
habits so that when I become a Christian, God takes all of the righteousness of Jesus and he deposits it in my spiritual bank account. So it doesn't matter how many checks I write against it, I cannot deplete the wonderful riches of the grace of God. That's what becoming a Christian means. But if I'm going to receive God's forgiveness, I have to ask for it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We must acknowledge we need God's forgiveness, but secondly, we must receive God's forgiveness. The moment we become a Christian, God forgives us. Look at Colossians 2, verse 13. I'm going to talk about verse 14 next Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper together. But look at verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ. And here's the best part. Having forgiven us, what? All. All our transgressions. When Christ forgives you, he doesn't forgive you just of those little itty-bitty sins. I'm sorry I didn't smile at you today. Not just the little sins. He forgives us of those humongous sins. He forgives us of that sin you hope to God nobody will ever discover. The sin that would make you crawl under the pew if it were projected on the iMag up here. All of those sins he has forgiven. He has nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and said, Tetelestai, paid in full, it is finished. That's the great news of the gospel. And that's the forgiveness that awaits everyone. Well, pastor, you said I'm forgiven, but that doesn't erase the consequences. How can there be anything positive that comes from these painful consequences? Even the consequences, ladies and gentlemen, is a sign of God's grace. Let me show you what I mean. Number three, view your adverse consequences from immorality as a vaccination against future mistakes. Do you remember, I'm probably dating myself, back in grade school, those of you who are about my age, back in 1960, they started giving polio vaccinations. And the way they administered those vaccinations mostly was not through a shot. It was through a little sugar cube you would take. And that sugar cube would be doused with a form of the polio uh, virus. And they tried to make it taste better with that sugar cube. But I can still taste today how awful that was because it didn't erase the bad taste. Why did it taste so bad? Because you were actually taking a weaker form of the polio virus so that your body, instead of being completely destroyed, would develop the immunities you needed to inoculate yourself against having the real disease later on. Now, in a lot of ways, God allows us to experience distasteful consequences of our sin to inoculate us against future similar mistakes. Some years ago, a man, I'll just call him Jack, came to see me, and he said, Pastor, I, I don't know what to do. He said, I got involved in an emotional, not a physical, but an emotional affair at work. It sapped my energy for two years. I focused on this other person. I thought at one time I'd leave my wife and marry her, but God really dealt with me. 
about it and I felt guilty and so I broke off the relationship. But I'm still experiencing the consequences of it. During that time, because I wasn't paying attention to my work, I lost my business. My wife and I still have a distant relationship even after I confess the mistake. If God has forgiven me, why do I experience these consequences? Now, I didn't know what to say. I'm not going to say this came from God, but I did get an idea. I said, Jack, let me ask you something. How likely are you to engage in any kind of an affair again with another woman? <laughs> he said, oh, pastor, every time I see a woman now, I run in the opposite direction. <laughs> I said, well, have you always been that way? Has that always been your attitude toward No, he said, I used to be quite a flirt. So I said, in a way, this mistake of yours has inoculated you against future mistakes. He said, well, I never thought of it that way, but that's right. I said, well, why don't we have a prayer of thanksgiving right now? He said, thanksgiving? I said, yeah, let's thank God. He said, thank God for my affair? I said, no, not thanking God for your affair, but thanking God for his mercy that he allowed your family to stay together to thank him for his grace, knowing you're not going to hell for this mistake. And yes, thanking you that, thanking God that you're more immune from these kind of affairs in the future than you've ever been. And I believe that's how we need to look at these consequences. By the way, that's not original with me. Solomon talks about that over and over again. He has a word for consequences. They're called reproofs. Throughout the book of Proverbs, you find Solomon saying that we need to learn from the reproofs of life. What are reproofs? They are corrections, discipline, painful consequences God sends into our life to prevent those consequences again in the future. Listen to what Proverbs says about reproofs. Proverbs 13, 18, poverty and shame will come to one who neglects discipline, but he who regards, who learns from reproofs will be honored. Or Proverbs 15, 5, a fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who respects reproof is sensible. Or Proverbs 15, 31, he whose ears listen to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Number four, if you're going to avoid regrets against future sexual immorality, avoid tempting situations. Avoid tempting situations. Students, I used to be the youth minister here. And when I was youth minister, I had a guy, he was a junior in high school, come to see me, one of the most outstanding guys in our youth division. And he said, Robert, I've got a problem. I don't know what to do about it. I said, well, what is it? He said, I'm really having trouble with my thought life. I'm having a hard time keeping wrong thoughts about girls from entering my mind. And I said, well, when do these thoughts tend to come? I swear I'm not making this up. He said, usually when I'm looking at the pictures in Playboy. <laughs> I almost laughed out loud. I said, well, cancel your subscription. Now, we laugh at that and said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. We do the same thing. We wonder, why am I in such temptation right now? Because we've gotten ourselves in a situation that nobody can handle. The Bible says over and over again, flee youthful lust. Don't see how close you can get to the edge of the immorality without crossing the line. You ought to run from that line as far and as fast as you can. How do you do that? 
Let me give some specific ways to avoid tempting situations. Number one, refuse to have any relationship with a member of the opposite sex that you are unwilling to tell your mate about. Now, that's key. It's not just refuse to have any relationship with a member of the opposite sex. Can you imagine if I as pastor did that? And I said, I'm just not going to talk to women at all in the church. I'm just not going to have any relationship with them. Well, I'd be run out of here if I said that. Women make up more than 50% of our congregation. No, the key is don't have any relationship with a woman you are trying to hide from your mate, that you're unwilling to tell your mate about. Don't send any text that you wouldn't be happy for your mate to read or make any phone calls or arrange any meetings. Secondly, reserve your most intimate thoughts for your mate. Did you know the most important organ in the sexual act is the brain? It's the brain. Sex doesn't begin in the bedroom. It begins in the mind. It's emotional bonding with people that leads to a physical bonding with people. And so, if you're married, save your deepest emotions, your happiness, your disappointments, your fears for that other person, your mate, not anybody else. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Number three, if you want to avoid tempting situations, refrain from meeting alone with members of the opposite sex. Now, I'm talking primarily to married people here, but refrain from meeting alone with members of the opposite sex. One of the things I so appreciated about our pastor, Dr. Criswell, was for the years of his ministry, there was never a taint of sexual immorality, not at all. And he was very rabid about following this principle. One of the ladies who was on staff when Dr. Crystal was pastor here told me this story years later. She said one night she was leaving the church and it was a torrential frog strangling uh, downpour that we experience here in Texas sometimes. And she got in her car and was driving away when she saw Dr. Criswell walking in the rain without an umbrella going from the old Criswell building over to his car in the Veal parking lot. And she pulled up her car and lowered the window and said, Dr. Criswell, get in here and I'll drive you to your car. You're going to drown. He said, honey, it would be better for me to drown than to be seen getting in the car with you all alone. And he continued to walk. Now, that's what you call wisdom. Wisdom. Compare that wisdom with the foolishness of a man that the writer of uh, Proverbs describes as a man lacking in sense. Some people have called this passage from Proverbs 7, anatomy of a seduction. Look at this in verse 6 of Proverbs 7. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. Passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house. And what does she say? This isn't a, necessarily a prostitute as we think of it but a woman loose in her morals. She says, come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves in caresses, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. 
He has taken a bag of money with him, and at the full moon, he will come home. In other words, he won't be home for days, maybe two weeks. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. You know, Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and not be burned? There are situations, it doesn't matter how spiritual you are, how much you pray, they're just too hot to handle, and you need to avoid them. Let me be real practical here for a moment. A wise person, man or woman, will avoid eating alone with a member of the opposite sex or allowing themselves to be in a conversation alone with somebody of the opposite sex because what can start out as an innocent conversation can take a wrong turn very quickly. You remember a couple of years ago, I was on TV of Fox talking about this several times. People were making fun of the vice president, Mike Pence, because of his rule for never dining alone with another woman. People said, that's extreme, that's eccentric, that's crazy. No, that's wisdom. And the Bible says if you want to avoid sexual regrets, you've got to go the extra mile in abstaining from tempting situations. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, how do you say goodbye to regrets about immorality and prevent those regrets in the future? Renew your commitment to marital fidelity. One thing I love about the Bible is it can say in one sentence what it takes me 30 minutes to say. Look at what the writer of Hebrews said, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators. That's talking about premarital sex. That's one way you keep it from being undefiled. But also adulterers, immoral sex after marriage, God will judge that. Hold marriage as honorable. But you know, in the end, it's not a commitment to the institution. It's not a commitment to an idea. It's a commitment to that other person that is the bedrock for remaining faithful in our marriage. I don't know about you. This was a long time ago. I was in a daze during our wedding. I don't remember a lot of what I said. In fact, I remember very well going back and listening to the ceremony the next day on cassette tape to see exactly what I had promised Amy and Dr. Crystal and everybody else, what I had said that day. But one thing I said, I bet you said it as well if you got married. You made the promise to be true to that other person in all things until death alone shall part you. And there's something powerful about renewing that commitment, not just yearly, but daily, even hourly. A number of years ago, I was preaching a message on this topic to a group at the Glorietta Baptist Encampment outside of Albuquerque. And after I finished the message, the host introduced me to somebody who had been in the audience a man named Robertson McQuilkin. 
If I had known he was going to be in the audience, I would have had him preach the message because he understands marital commitment more than anybody I know. I usually don't like to read long things, but after the reaction I got at the first service, I think this is going to speak to some of you. Listen to what he writes about his own experience with commitment with his mate. Seventeen summers ago, Muriel and I began our journey into the twilight. It's midnight now, at least for her, and sometimes I wonder when dawn will break. Even the dreaded Alzheimer's disease isn't supposed to attack so early or torment for so long. Yet in her silent world, Muriel is so content, so lovable. If Jesus took her home, how I would miss her gentle, sweet presence. Yes, there are times when I get irritated, but not often. It doesn't make sense to get angry. And perhaps the Lord has been answering the prayer of my youth to mellow my spirit. One time, though, I completely lost it. In the days when Muriel could still stand and walk and we had not yet resorted to diapers, sometimes there were accidents. I was on my knees beside her, trying to clean up the mess as she stood confused. It would have been easier if she hadn't been so insistent on helping. I got more and more frustrated. Suddenly, to make her stand still, I slapped her calf as if that would do any good. It wasn't a hard slap, but she was startled. I was too. Never in our 44 years of marriage had I ever so much as touched her in anger or in rebuke of any kind. Never was tempted, in fact. But now, when she needed me most, at that very moment, Chuck Swindoll boomed from the radio in our kitchen. Men, are you at home? Really at home? In the midst of my stinking immersion, I smiled, yeah, Chuck, I really am at home. And how I wish I weren't. Recently, a student's wife named Cindy asked me, don't you ever get tired? Tired, I said. Every night, that's why I go to bed. No, I mean tired of, and she tilted her head toward Muriel, who sat silently in her wheelchair, her, vac her vacant eyes saying, nobody's at home just now. I responded to her question, why no? I don't get tired. I love her. She's my precious. Well, Cindy said, I certainly would get tired. Cindy and her husband are handsome, healthy, smart people, yet she admits that it is hard to constantly affirm her husband. What happens when there is so little to commend? How does love make a difference? Love is said to evaporate if the relationship is not mutual, if it's not physical, if the other person doesn't communicate, or if one party doesn't carry his or her share of the load. When I hear the litanies of essentials for a happy marriage, I count off what my beloved can no longer contribute, and I contemplate how truly mysterious love is. Perhaps love is not quite as mysterious as Robertson McQuilkin makes it out to be. With the kind of rock-solid commitment he demonstrates toward his wife, the chances of that love evaporating are about as great as the chances of Hoover Dam. 
being reduced to a mist and vaporizing. It's just not going to happen. And ultimately, it's that kind of rock-solid commitment to your mate, the remember of your vows, the love you have for that other person that is the best deterrent I know to sexual regrets in life. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. I'm speaking to some of you right now. I know by the sheer numbers listening, you're a Christian, but you're involved in secret sin. Believe me when I tell you, it will not remain secret. The only reason God has perhaps limited the consequences so far is to give you an opportunity to repent, to turn away from your sin, to confess your sin, and to experience God's forgiveness. Maybe you're in a relationship that hasn't quite crossed the line, but it's headed there. And you would say, God, give me the strength to say no, to turn and go as far and as fast in the opposite direction as I possibly can. Right now, you're in the process of making a decision that will affect your life, your children's life, your grandchildren forever and ever. Are you ready to repent, to turn back to God today? There are also some listening who have lots of regrets, lots of mistakes, not just sexual mistakes, other mistakes too. The thought of facing God one day terrifies you, so you don't think about it much. But the Bible says it's appointed unto every one of us once to die and then the judgment. Today, you can have the forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future, by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And today, if you'd like to receive his forgiveness in your life, I encourage you to pray this prayer in your heart as I pray it out loud, knowing that God is listening to you. Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in many ways, and I'm sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe you loved me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die for me. And right now, I'm trusting in him to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.